God's Revelation to the Human Heart by Father Seraphim Rose Introduction by Father Damascene In May of 1981, only one year before his repose, Father Seraphim Rose was invited to give a lecture at the University of California, Santa Cruz. His audience was to be comprised of students from a class on comparative religions called World Religions in the U.S. Santa Cruz had been a center for nationwide spiritual quest that had reached its peak in the late 1960s and early 70s, and vestiges of this movement had continued into the 80s. The young people who came to hear Father Seraphim's talk, therefore, had been traveling on a wide variety of spiritual paths. Popular in Santa Cruz at that time were various gurus who promised enlightenment or dazzled people with miracles. Rajneesh, Muktananda, Sri Chinmoy, and numerous others who had achieved temporary fame. Many seekers at the university, bypassing the spiritual disciplines taught by the gurus, sought direct religious experience through hallucinogenic drugs. Still others, dissatisfied with the spiritual poverty of Western culture, sought higher reality in Tibetan and Zen Buddhism, or in anglicized forms of American Indian shamanism. Finally, there remained those who wished to seek truth in their Christian heritage. Western Christendom, however, had long since been cut off from the fullness of its ancient tradition, and thus from an awareness of the spiritual, metaphysical principles on which it was based. Those who tried to make the best of contemporary Western Christianity, therefore, were prone to feel somewhat inferior before all the popularized religious traditions of the East, where the teachers had their metaphysics up their shirt sleeves, so to speak. Father Seraphim came before this gamut of spiritual currents with something different to say, something that most of the people in his audience had never been exposed to before. He represented Christianity, the tradition that still, almost unconsciously, influenced the whole of Western culture, and yet his was not the anemic, superficial American Christianity that so many seekers had left behind to look elsewhere. In his experience, he drew from the full revelation of Christ's truth, handed down by divinely illumined teachers throughout the past 20 centuries. Christianity, he knew, had been given a bad name in the West, and yet how many honest searchers, if they knew all that it actually was, would not hesitate to embrace it. Like the students whom he was addressing, Father Seraphim had once been an idealistic young American in search of the truth. Having rejected the Protestant religion of his formative years, he undertook a zealous study of Oriental wisdom, learning the language of ancient China in order to translate its religious texts. But the soul, as he later realized, naturally seeks a personal God, and thus he was led almost in spite of himself, back to the all-compelling truth of Christ. Still, this conversion might have never taken place had he not discovered the Eastern Orthodox Church, which was all but unknown in Western society. This church, he understood, was indeed the historical church founded by Christ and his apostles, for it alone had retained the continuity and purity of ancient Christian teaching. However, it was not first of all the testimony of history that moved him to embrace the Orthodox faith, since other religions can also claim faithfulness to their historical origins. Rather, it was the fact that Orthodox Christianity alone satisfied his thirst for truth. It brought him into living contact with the grace of God, 
gave him a profound discipline in which he could grow spiritually and at the same time provided him with the metaphysical principles by which his penetrating mind could perceive the universe as a coherent whole. Father Seraphim had devoted himself wholly to his search for truth, and when he found it, he devoted himself no less fully to the service of it. Together with another Orthodox Christian of like mind, he began a missionary brotherhood, a bookstore and a periodical, the Orthodox word, in San Francisco. Some years later, wishing to leave the tumult of the world and seek God in quiet seclusion, his brotherhood moved to the mountains of Northern California, where it continued the missionary activity through the printed word. He spent the next 13 years, the remainder of his short life, in this wilderness as a monk. And it was during this time that he emerged into a phenomenon almost unheard of in our days. This inward change was wrought in him through his becoming immersed in the Church's cycle of prayers and the timeless writings of the Holy Fathers. By diligently studying patristic texts with the purpose of practically using them for spiritual growth, he was able to think, feel, and believe as the early Fathers of the Church had done, until at last he became as one of them, a Holy Father of modern times one of the rare transmitters of unchanging Christian wisdom to the contemporary world. Such was the caliber of the man who sat before the group of students at Santa Cruz University. With his piercing eyes, long beard and black robe, his appearance was as striking as that of the gurus to whom the young people were flocking. But his intention was not to impress them on such an external level. He knew that for any of these students to come to the fullness of truth, something deeper would have to take place within them. Father Seraphim was well aware of how spiritually insensitive modern man had become, and thus he knew that people often needed some supernatural phenomena, some sensual but seemingly spiritual experiences to awaken any response in them. That was why so many young seekers followed, quote, holy men, or religious groups on the basis of the miracles they performed or the results they promised as well as why hallucinogenic drugs, occult practices, and so-called charismatic experiences had become so popular. Father Seraphim wished to tell the students that this desire to experience or see something, quote, spiritual, something beyond mundane everyday life, was not the right reason to undertake a spiritual quest. If one is honest, one will seek nothing but the fullness of truth, as Father Seraphim himself had done, and will not stop at a state where only a portion of the truth is present, eliciting a deceptive feeling of satisfaction. It is true that Father Seraphim had witnessed many miracles during his life. One of his mentors, Archbishop John Maximovich, had been a worker of wonders in the same way that the first apostles were. Father Seraphim would tell the students of some of these wonders, but he would do this only to lead them towards deeper considerations. His ultimate aim, of course, was to awaken people to that which they truly desired, the living Christ. He recognized that, for all the spiritual denseness of contemporary Western man, the basic process of his conversion was no different from what it had been in the past ages. Conversion takes place when something in the heart is touched. When the heart begins to burn at being in contact with God-revealed truth, 
Before this can take place, however, the person often has to feel an absence of this truth and to actually experience suffering as a result of its want. People in the affluent Western world often have this feeling of spiritual torment suppressed from their consciousness, so occupied are they with physical comfort and stimulations. In countries where people are deprived of freedom and comfort, on the other hand, the spiritual hunger of man becomes more immediate and desperate. Therefore, Father Seraph realized, people in the free world have an important lesson to learn from those behind the Iron Curtain concerning the awakening of religious faith. But could the former people, living in what might be called a fool's paradise, translate the real and essential experience of the latter into a form that they could even begin to understand. Father Seraphim hoped so, for he knew that, without a knowledge of Golgotha and the cross, one could never come to a real knowledge of Christ, the incarnate God. One of Father Seraphim's intentions in speaking to the students was to show them that spiritual life is not just something to be, quote, enjoyed, but was rather a kind of battleground where the soul becomes purified through suffering, to many of the students, this was a novel concept. For who of the modern-day religious figures wishing to gain a popular following would have called people to a way of ceaseless suffering and struggle? Such, however, was the way that Christ himself went and beckoned men to follow. And Father Seraphim, indicating this narrow path in the course of his lecture, moved some of his listeners to take up their crosses and follow it. Unfortunately, judging from the questions he was asked after his lecture, the majority of the students seemed to somehow miss the point. He had been speaking about the elemental reality of Christian life, what it means to be converted in one's heart and transformed by Christ. He had called the search for truth a matter of life or death. In contrast to this urgency, Many of the questions he was asked appeared to be motivated by little more than idle curiosity. He was put on the spot with questions about what he thought of various Christian bodies, about where he thought the Holy Spirit was and where not, about the million and one little differences, unquote, between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, and so on. As if his questioners were trying to, quote, categorize what he said, rather than let themselves be moved by it. What is inspiring is that even when he was compelled to answer these questions, he continued to speak the truth in love, as he had done during his lecture, and to draw people's minds towards a more spiritual way of understanding things. The lecture, God's Revelation to the Human Heart, is read by a monk of the St. Herman Brotherhood until Father Seraphim himself began to be recorded. Why does a person study religion? There are many incidental reasons, but there is only one reason if a person is really in earnest. In a word, it is to come into contact with reality, to find a reality deeper than the everyday reality that so quickly changes, rots away, leaves nothing behind, and offers no lasting happiness to the human soul. Every religion that is sincere tries to open up contact with this reality. I would like to say a few words today about how Orthodox Christianity tries to do this, to open up spiritual reality to the religious seeker. The search for reality is a dangerous task. 
You all have probably heard stories of how young people in our times of searching have burned themselves out, trying to find reality, and either die young or drag out a dreary existence at a fraction of their potential of mind and soul. I myself recall a friend from the days of my own searching 25 years ago, when Aldous Huxley had just discovered the supposedly spiritual value of LSD and it had influenced many to follow him. This young man, a typical religious searcher who might be attending a course like this, once told me, No matter what you might say of the dangers of drugs, you must admit that anything is better than everyday American life, which is spiritually dead. I disagreed, since even then I was beginning to glimpse that spiritual life spreads in two directions. It can lead one higher than this everyday life of corruption, but it can also lead one lower and bring about a literal spiritual as well as physical death. He went his own way, and before he was thirty years old, he was a wreck of an old man, his mind ruined, and any search for reality abandoned. Similar examples could be found among people who seek out various forms of psychic experiences, experiment in out-of-the-body states, have encounters with UFOs and the like. The experience of the Jonestown mass suicide in 1980 is enough to remind us of the dangers inherent in the religious search. Our orthodox literature over the past 2,000 years has quite a few instructive examples of this sort. Here I will cite just one from the life of St. Nicetus of the Kiev Caves, who lived nearly 1,000 years ago in Russia. Drawn by zeal, Nicetus asked his abbot to bless him to live in reclusion. The abbot, who was then St. Nikon, forbade him, saying, My son, it is not good for you who are young to be idle. Better for you to live with the brethren. By serving them you will not lose your reward. You know yourself how Isaac was deluded by demons in reclusion. He would have perished if the special grace of God through the prayers of our Holy Fathers Anthony and Theodosius had not saved him. Father, Nicetus replied, I will never be deceived by anything of that kind, but I want to stand firmly against the wiles of the demons and to ask God to give me the gift of miracle-working like Isaac the recluse, who even till now performs many miracles. Your desire, said the abbot again, is beyond your power. Be on your guard, lest, having been exalted, you fall. I, on the contrary, order you to serve your brethren, and you will receive a crown from God for your obedience. Nicetus, drawn by the strongest zeal for the life of reclusion, had not the least desire to attend to what the abbot said to him. He carried out what he had set his mind on. He shut himself up in reclusion and continued praying without ever going out. After some time, once when he was praying, he heard a voice praying with him, and he smelled an extraordinary fragrance. Deceived by this, he said to himself, If this were not an angel, he would not have prayed with me, and there would not have been the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. Nicetus began to pray earnestly, saying, Lord, manifest thyself to me intelligibly, that I may see thee. Then there was a voice which said to him, I will not appear to thee, because thou art young, lest, having been lifted up, thou fallest down. The recluse replied with tears, Lord, I will never be deluded, because the abbot taught me not to attend to diabolic delusion, but I will do all that thou orderest me. Then, having obtained power over him, the soul-destroying snake said, It is impossible for a man while still in the flesh to see me. But look, I am sending my angel to stay with thee, carry out his will. With these words, a demon in the form of an angel appeared to the recluse. 
Nicetus fell at his feet and worshipped him as an angel. The demon said, Henceforth do not pray, but read books. In this way thou wilt enter into constant converse with God, and wilt receive the power to give salutary teaching to those who come to thee, and I will unceasingly pray to the Creator of all for thy salvation. The recluse believed these words and was still further deceived. He stopped praying and occupied himself with reading. He saw the demon constantly praying and rejoiced, supposing that an angel was praying for him. Then he began to talk much from scripture to those who came to him, and to prophesy like the Palestinian recluse. His fame spread among worldly people and reached the grand prince's court. Actually, he did not prophesy, but he told those who came to him where stolen goods had been put or where something had happened in a distant place, obtaining his information from the demon who attended him. Thus he told the grand prince Isyaslav about the murder of Prince Gleb of Novgorod, and advised him to send his son to take over the princedom and rule in his stead. This was sufficient for worldly people to hail the recluse as a prophet. It is observable that worldly people, and even monks without spiritual discernment, are nearly always attracted by humbugs, impostors, hypocrites, and those who are in demonic delusion, and they take them for saints and genuine servants of God. No one could compare with Nicetus for knowledge of the Old Testament, but he could not bear the New Testament, never took his talks from the Gospels or the Apostolic Epistles, and would not allow any of his visitors to mention anything from the New Testament. From this strange bias in his teaching, the fathers of the Kiev Caves Monastery realized that he was deceived by a demon. At that time there were many holy monks endowed with spiritual gifts and graces in the monastery. They drove the devil from Nicetus by their prayers. Nicetus stopped seeing it. The fathers brought Nicetus out of reclusion and asked him to tell them something out of the Old Testament. But he affirmed with an oath that he never read those books which he previously knew by heart. It turned out that he had even forgotten how to read, so great was the influence of the satanic delusion, and it was only with great difficulty that he learned to read again. Through the prayers of the Holy Fathers, he was brought to himself, he acknowledged and confessed his sin, he bewailed it with bitter tears, and he obtained a high degree of sanctity and the gift of miracle working by a humble life among the brethren. Subsequently, St. Nicetus was consecrated as Bishop of Novgorod. This story raises a question for us today. How can a religious seeker avoid traps and deceptions which he encounters in his search? There is only one answer to this question. A person must be in the religious search not for the sake of religious experiences, which can deceive, but for the sake of truth. Anyone who studies religion seriously comes up against this question. It is a question literally of life and death. Our Orthodox Christian faith, as contrasted with the Western Confession, is often called mystical. It is in contact with a spiritual reality that produces results which are usually called supernatural, which are beyond any kind of earthly logic or experience. One does not need to search in ancient literature to find examples, for the life of a miracle worker in our own days is full of mystical elements. Archbishop John Maximovich, who died just 15 years ago, and lived in this very part of California as Archbishop of San Francisco, was seen in glowing light, levitated during prayer, was clairvoyant, worked miracles of healing. None of this, however, is remarkable in itself. It can easily be imitated by false miracle workers. How do we know that he was in contact with truth? If you look at a textbook of Orthodox theology, you will find that the truth cannot be found by the unaided powers of man. 
You can read the scriptures or any holy book and not even understand what they say. There is an example of this in the book of Acts, in the story of the Apostle Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip, and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth, and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chair to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Well, that's an account that has supernatural elements in it. That is, the Spirit tells Philip where to go although to the Ethiopian it seems like it's just a chance encounter on a desert road. And later on, after the baptism, the spirit takes up Philip and disappears before the eyes of the eunuch. But that's not why he became baptized. It was something else which affected him, and it wasn't the, the miracles. There was something in his heart. The miracles, although they help sometimes faith, or a person to come to faith, are not the right reason to accept Christianity. In the same book of Acts, we read the story of Simon the sorcerer, who wished to pay money to join the church and to gain the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because they were very spectacular and miraculous. And he being in the profession, in those days it was a very good profession of sorcery, and the more supernatural things you could do, the more money you can get, and the more prestige and so forth, and there was more of this going on in Christianity at that time than there was in their pagan world. But he was refused by Peter, as we know in the Acts, himself came to a bad end, and he gave the word which we still use, simony, to indicate when someone tries to buy the grace of God. But when Philip spoke to this Ethiopian eunuch, something in his heart changed. It says in the Gospel that he came to believe and what that means is that his heart was melted by hearing the truth which Philip was speaking to him. Because the words of Scripture are very powerful words, and when the right interpretation is given to them, something in a human being opens up if his heart is ready for it. And therefore he accepted Christ with his whole soul. He was a changed man. 
and not for the sake of miracles, but for the sake of that thing which Christ came to earth to bring. The same thing can be seen in another place of the New Testament, <coughs> when two of the disciples of Christ were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke, chapter 24. Christ himself, on the very day of his resurrection, joined them and began walking with them and asking them, what's, why are you so excited? And they began to say, well, you're the only one who doesn't understand what's happened in Jerusalem. There's this man we thought was the Messiah, and he was killed, and now they say he's risen from the dead. We don't know what to believe. And so he began to open their hearts and begin to explain what the Old Testament says is going to happen to the Messiah. And later on, they came to Emmaus, and Christ made as though he's going to go on further. And out of love, simple love, because he's a stranger and he should have a place to stay for the night, they asked him to spend the night. Therefore he sat down with them, began to eat. He broke the bread, as he did at the Last Supper, and their eyes were open. They saw it was Christ himself, and then he's gone, right before their eyes. And you wonder, why? what is this thing that was so... And they began to question themselves and say, there's something strange. And they remembered that all the time he was with them, walking on the road even though they didn't recognize him. They felt a burning in their hearts. And so if you ask what it was that sort of made them recognize Christ in the end, it's this burning heart. Something has touched in their heart. And not just the fact that he vanished out of their sight, because magicians can do that also. So it was not, first of all, miracles that reveal God to men. It's something in the heart which, that is that it's a, a something about God which is revealed to a heart which is ready for it. That's what this burning heart means. And this is the way they had contact with God who came in the flesh. And this is how what is called revelation comes about. The heart is moved and changed by the presence of God or by someone who is filled with the Spirit of God or by hearing the Word of God, hearing the truth about Him preached. That is how the apostles had the power to go out to literally the whole inhabited earth, to India, perhaps even as far as China, to Russia in the north, where the Scythians were living, to Britain in the west, to Abyssinia in the south, virtually the whole inhabited world at that time. The gospel was preached within that first, first decades after the resurrection of Christ. And it is the same today. Even though people have become much more insensitive and dense spiritually, much less simple, and do not respond so easily to the truth. In the case of Archbishop John, those who have come to believe through him have been moved not first of all by his miracles, but by something that moved their hearts about him. I'll give her an example from his life in Shanghai, where he was bishop during World War II. It was told by um, a good friend of ours who died a few years ago, a lady, who was a voice instructor. She had the assignment, since Archbishop John was, had a, his fasting was so strict that he, uh, she explained it to me once, his lower jaw lost power during fast times, and therefore his, he spoke very indistinctly. And she had the assignment of giving him lessons to sort of exercise the jaw and make it so he can speak a little more distinctly. And he would always come to her at regular intervals, and whenever he finished the lesson, he would leave a $20 American bill. It was his custom to leave for the, for the lesson. And during the wartime, the, this lady became very ill, was in the hospital, and there, I think bombardment was going on from the Japanese at that time, and it was impossible, there was no communications in the city, 
it was impossible to get word to him where she was. And she had in her heart only one idea. Only I can, I'm going to die. It's very clear. Whatever the doctor says, I'm going to die. In fact, the doctor said it was a very desperate case. And I only hope as if he will come and help me. Give me Holy Communion and I'll somehow be saved. And so she begged people to call him up. The phones weren't working. Somehow get word to him. There's a terrible storm. There's no possible way of getting out to get a word to him. And so all she could do was to cry out, Help! Help! Archbishop John, come! And of course, they said the poor woman is raving. There's no possible contact with him. And that night, as she was shouting this, all of a sudden, the doors open up in the midst of the storm, and in walks Archbishop John with Holy Communion. She comes up to, to her and gives her confession, calms her down, and she's, of course, overjoyed. And finally, he gives her Holy Communion and leaves. The next morning, she wakes up and she feels she's she slept I don't know, 24 hours or something, and she feels she's getting she's recovered. And she said, it must be the fact that Archbishop John came. And then she said, Archbishop John, there was no such thing that happened. There was nobody here. The first person on the bed next to her said, yes, there was somebody here. It was a very vague thing, but there was somebody there doing something to her. And I began to wonder when she's having hallucinations. And they were cleaning her head that day. They discovered under her pillow a $20 American bimbo. She said, aha, that's the proof. He was here. <laughs> and you ask, how, how did he know? How did he manage to get to her? That's a very good question. There's no, no human case possible to get the message across. What I can say is that it was revealed to him, as many things like that were revealed to him. But how was it revealed to him? Why was it revealed to him and not to somebody else? And why is the truth, it seems, revealed to some people and not to others? Is there a special organ for receiving revelation? And I think we can say yes, in a certain sense there is special organ by which we receive revelation from God. Usually we close it. We don't let it open up. God's revelation is given to something called a loving heart. We know from the scriptures that God is love. Christianity is the religion of love. You can look at the failures, people who aren't call themselves Christians and aren't, and you can say it's not love, but Christianity, when it's successful, practiced in the right way, is the religion of love. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said that his disciples will be known above all by the fact that they have love for each other. If you asked anyone who knew Archbishop John what it was that drew people to him and still draw people to him who never heard and never saw him in life, the answer is always the same. He was overflowing with love. He sacrificed himself for his fellow men out of absolutely unselfish love for God and for his fellow men. And this is why things were revealed to him that would not get through to other people. He himself taught that for all the so-called mysticism of our Orthodox Church, which you will find in all the lives of saints and the writings of Holy Fathers, the truly Orthodox person always has his feet, both feet, firmly on the ground, facing whatever situation is given right in front of him. And whatever situation is right there, that's how you encounter Christ, encounter God. This loving heart is why anyone comes to the knowledge of the truth, even though God sometimes has to break down and humble a heart to make it receptive, as we know from the case of the Apostle Paul, who was breathing fire against the Christians, persecuting, and so forth. But to God, the past, the present, and the future of the human heart are all present, and he sees where he can break through and communicate. 
the opposite of this, the opposite of the loving heart, which receives the revelation of God, is cold calculation, getting what you can out of people. In religious life, this produces fakery, charlatanism, of all descriptions. If you look at the religious world today, you see there's a great deal that's going on. A lot of fakery, posing, calculation, taking advantage of various winds of fashion, which bring first one religion or one attitude into fashion, and then another one. But to find the truth, to have truth opened up to you, you have to look deeper. A year or so ago, I had a visit, a talk on a long train ride with a young American who, purely by chance, of course there's no chance in life, seemingly by chance, met me on the train. It turns out that he was studying Russian because he was a religious seeker and he'd been to all kinds of especially uh, Christian, so-called Christian groups and found nothing but hypocrisy, fakery, every place he was ready to give the whole thing up. And then he heard that in Russia people are suffering for their faith. And therefore he said, probably where people are suffering, there's going to be something real. There won't be such fakers as we have in America. So he started studying Russian with the, Russian, with the idea of going to Russia and meeting people who are real Christians. And of course, this was an astonishing idea to me, because here I was a Russian Orthodox priest, and uh, he was very impressed by that fact. And we had a long discussion about religion, and all of his ideas were quite sound. But the idea that where suffering is taking place, there maybe there's going to be some kind of reality. It's a, a very sound idea. Because in the fourth century, one of our great Orthodox theologians, St. Gregory, the theologian, he, say, he defined orthodoxy in a way as suffering orthodoxy. And for the whole history of the church, from the very beginning, the apostles were persecuted. Almost all the apostles died as martyrs. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Almost all the apostles were martyred for their faith and tortured. The first three centuries is the age of catacombs with tremendous sufferings going on. And after that, there was the suffering of all kinds of various opinions about what Christianity was, and there was fights and persecutions over that. Then there were the invasions by Arabs to the Orthodox countries, by the Turks. In the 20th century, the communists, who have persecuted religion as never before. So actually, our Orthodox faith is a suffering faith. And in this suffering, something goes on which helps the heart to receive God's revelation. <coughs> So I'd like to ask, as a final question, what does the suffering orthodoxy of Russia have to say to us today? This orthodox, this uh, suffering religion which this young man wanted to go see in Russia. Is the truth being revealed to people in Russia today? According to worldly logic, <coughs> there should be no chance of this. Communism has reigned for 60 years, and from the very beginning the idea was stamp out religion. For a time, at the end of the 1930s, they almost succeeded according to their ideas. There were only very few churches left. And unless uh, Hitler had invaded and required the people to become patriotic and have some kind of uh, hope in life, besides communism, the, they could have driven the church entirely underground. Today, the situation is not quite as bad. It's still, there's a great deal of pressure upon believers. There was a renewed persecution in the 1960s under Khrushchev, which resulted in probably three-fourths of the churches which were open then have now been closed. So that at the present time, apart from the big cities where tourists go, in Moscow, for example, or Leningrad, you'll see maybe 30 or 40 churches open. But in other places in the provinces, there are 
cities of a million people with no churches. And sometimes you have to travel, if you want someone, a child baptized, you have to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles. So I'd like to say a word about how God is revealing himself to suffering Christians in Russia right now. Probably all of you have heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a great Russian novelist and thinker who was exiled from his native land in 1975 for speaking the truth as he saw it. He's noted for his age is almost exactly the same as the age of the revolution itself, so you can't accuse him of having um, prejudices left over from his childhood or something like that. He lived the typical life of Soviet Union. His father was killed in World War I. And he was born right in the year after the revolution. He studied mathematics to get a practical job, served as a soldier in World War II. He was a sergeant. Went with the Soviet army to Germany. Was arrested in 1945 because in some of his letters he had written disrespectful remarks about the mustache, which means Stalin. For this he got eight years in concentration camp. At the end of this sentence, in 1953, he was exiled, which means you're not exactly in prison, but you're not very free either. You're not allowed to go anyplace. In a city in southern Kazakhstan, in the desert. And here he uh, contracted cancer, nearly died. He was healed in a cancer clinic. He wrote a novel about that, Cancer Ward. In this place of exile, he taught math and physics, and in a secret, he was writing novels and stories. After Stalin died, there was a temporary area, era of um, thaw or softening, and he was allowed to come out and be free. And he published one book in Russia. But then he was dis it was discovered that he was uh, more dissident than um, they liked. Therefore, he was not allowed to publish anything else. And his novels began to be published outside Russia. And this made him very troublesome, especially in 1970 when he won the Nobel Prize was not allowed to go receive it. In 1975, he was finally kicked out. He was given, I think, one day's notice, prepare yourself, and they sent him to West Germany. He now lives in Connecticut. And since that time, he's been continuing his writing. And a very important thing, he's been speaking to the West about the meaning of uh, the atheist experiment in Russia. Not primarily from the political point of view, that's one question, but from a more uh, down-to-earth and even spiritual point of view. He's told us, in a way, he's a symbol of the contemporary Orthodox revival in Russia, because he's got undergone the 60 and more years of suffering of the Russian people, and he comes out not defeated by it. He has a very strong Christian faith, and he has a message to the world based upon his experience. He speaks, first of all, about Gulag. In fact, his book, The Gulag Archipelago, is, I think, must-reading for anyone who wants to understand atheism as it is practice today over these last 60 years. He's not bitter about his experience in the prison camp and so forth. He's sort of emerged a victor over it because he obtained Christian faith. <coughs> and he sees that the gulag, the whole system of atheism is not just something Russian. It's a, a sort of a universal category of the human soul. That once you have the idea that atheism is true, that there is no God, then actually anything is permitted, like Dostoevsky wrote in his novel. Anything becomes permitted. Anything that, that comes to you, any kind of inspiration, or any kind of a new way of looking at things, a new kind of society, it becomes, it's, po it's possible to experiment that way. And so Solzhenitsyn's value is that he shows that once atheism becomes the dominant philosophy, 
and the idea is present that you have to exterminate all religion, which is the center of communist ideology, then you have to have prison camps because man wants religion. And if you for, forbid it, you have to simply squash him, get rid of him. And therefore, this, since atheism is, is based on the evil in man's nature, this prison system is the natural expression of atheist experiment. But this is the uh, secondary point. The main point I'd like to talk about is what happened to him when he went to prison in a religious sense. Because there it was that God was revealed to him. At the same time that Gulag is this terrible, uh, reveals the evil in men's nature, it is also the starting point for a man's spiritual rebirth. And this, I think, is what makes the spiritual rebirth of Russia, which is occurring right now, much more profound than the various spiritual revivals which are occurring in the free world. And here's what Solzhenitsyn himself says about how he came to faith. He says, It was granted me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how he becomes good. In the intoxication of youthful successes, I had felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. He was a sergeant in the army. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first strivings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me. That is, his heart became soft and receptive, and some kind of revelation took place. It was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, not between classes, not between political parties, but right through every human heart, and then through all human hearts. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an un unuprooted small corner of evil. How much deeper this observation is than anything we in the West could say based upon our own experience. It is deeper because it is based on suffering. And suffering is the reality of the human condition in the beginning of true spiritual life. Christ himself came to a life of suffering and the cross. And the experience in Russia enables those to undergo it to see this very profoundly. And that is why this Christian revival in Russia is such a very deep thing. <coughs> I'd like to say now a word about a simpler man who gives an account of his conversion in Russia. His name is Yuri Mashkov, who came out of Russia three years ago. He was forcibly exiled. And at a very, very young age, 40, in his early 40s, he had cancer already and died just last year. He gave a talk a few years ago, just after he came to this country, and told something about how he came to faith. That is, how God was revealed to him through his sufferings. He was invited to talk at a Russian conference in New Jersey in 1978. And when he came to this talk, he told the people he didn't know what to say when he was driving there. He says, I was disturbed. It seemed to me that I had nothing to tell you. The first half of my life, I was a student. And the second half, I spent in prisons and the political concentration camps of the Gulag. And what can I say to people who are more educated than I am, more erudite, and even better informed about events in the Soviet Union? <coughs> Here we can see a contrast to what happens in the West. The move, there are many people in the West being converted to orthodoxy, it's true enough. And usually they have a, la a large theoretical knowledge about orthodoxy, but not this kind of experience of suffering and 
having to really pay for what you get. <coughs> and therefore, he speaks not from books, but from his own experience. Therefore, he said, I decided not to write down my talk, but to say whatever God would place in my soul. And then, as we were hurrying away from Bridgeport, Connecticut, in a splendid automobile, along the astonishing freeway, in the midst of a luxuriant nature, I understood that all my spiritually tormenting life in the atheist paradise, my path from atheism and Marxism to orthodox faith and Russian to orthodox faith is the only valuable information that can be of interest to you. My life is of interest only in as much as it is a drop in the ocean of the orthodox religious rebirth. <coughs> he tells about his life. He was born in the bloody year of 1937 in the village of Klishev, 30 miles from Moscow. My father, a blacksmith, died in the war, and I have no mem remembrance of him. My mother, who worked at various jobs, was indifferent to religion. My grandmother was religious. In fact, in Russia, you'll find almost always there's one grandmother or mother who's religious, and they often bring the family back to faith. But she had no authority in my eyes because she was totally illiterate. Of course, I was baptized as a child, but in my school years, I took off my cross, and until the age of 25, I was a convinced atheist. After finishing the seven-year primary school, I had the good fortune to enter the Moscow Higher School of Art and Industry, and I studied there seven, five years out of the seven. Thus, outwardly, my life had begun very successfully. In time, I would have received the diploma of an artist and would be able to work wherever I wanted. This is a typical uh, Soviet uh, academic biography. That is, so the academic life is considered very serious. If you pass, you get uh, an open ticket or many good things in Soviet life. <coughs> if you don't pass, then you clean the streets or something like that. But the boring Soviet life and spiritual dissatisfaction gave me no peace. And somewhere at the end of 1955, when I was 19 years old, there occurred an event outwardly unnoticeable, which, however, overturned my life and finally brought me here. This event occurred in my soul and consisted in the fact that I understood in what kind of society I was living. Despite all the naked Soviet propaganda, I understood that I was living under a regime of absolute rightlessness and absolute cruelty. Very many students came to the same conclusion at this time, and in time there appeared those who thought as, uh, as I did. And we all considered it our duty to tell the people about our discovery and to somehow act against the triumph of evil. Of course, this is idealistic current of youth, which is to be seen in the Western world also. But the secret police looks very carefully after all the citizens of the USSR. And when, on November 7th, 1958, when he was just 21 years old, we gathered at an organizational meeting to decide the question of an underground publication, six of us were arrested, and all who did not repent were given the highest punishment for anti-Soviet agitation, seven years each in concentration camp. Thus began a new path in my life. Up to here, we should know it, there's no religious conversion at all. He's just an idealistic youth who has suddenly been squashed in some way to the gulag. <coughs> all of us then were atheists of the Euro-communist camp. That is, we believed that Marxism in itself was a true teaching, which leads the people to a bright future, to a kingdom of freedom and justice. And the Moscow criminals, for some reason, did not want to realize this teaching in life. In the concentration camp, this idea completely and forever died in all of us. Here, I don't want to go into the question of communism and philosophy, just to, to note this idea that he was reduced to a state of despair, because what he believed earlier, through his training, communism was a very idealistic teaching which brings happiness and peace to people, he lost it. 
as he saw it in practice, it is not like that. And then something began to happen to his soul. I would like to reveal a little the process of spiritual rebirth, he says, so that you can see how unfailingly it is proceeding in the Russian people. It is not only I and those who are with me who have gone through this spiritual path from atheism to religious faith. This is a typical manifestation for the Soviet political concentration camps. What is happening with our people? The process of spiritual rebirth has two stages. At first, we discern the essence of atheism and are free from any illusions with regard to it. Under a profound and thoughtful analysis, we discover that Marxism, in its essence, is a complete teaching of totalitarianism. That is, an absolute slavery. In any communist party, in any country, one something undertaken in the realization of this program will be compelled to repeat what the modern communists have done in our ruling, or else renounce Marxism and atheism and liquidate themselves. Having understood this simple truth, we lose the ideological basis on which we had opposed Marxist slavery. We fall into a spiritual vacuum which draws after it an ever profound crisis. And then he begins to enter this profound crisis. <coughs> after being freed from camp, that is after seven years, our prospects were one that we would not wish for an enemy. Either we would get caught again and go back to camp and remain there for the rest of our lives, or we might die in a psychiatric prison, or we might be murdered by the secret police without any trial or investigation. In these conditions of spiritual crisis, with no way out, there inevitably comes upon us the chief question of a worldview. What am I living for if there is no way out? And when this frightful moment comes, each of us feels that death has really caught him by the throat. If some kind of a spiritual answer does not come, life comes to an end. Because without God, not only is everything permitted, but life itself has no value and no meaning. In the camp, I saw how people went out of their minds or ended with suicide. And I myself felt that if I came to the firm and final conclusion that there is no God, I would simply be obliged to end with suicide, since it is shameful and belittling for a rational creature to drive out a senseless and tormenting life. Thus, at the second stage of spiritual rebirth, we discover that atheism, thought out to its logical end, brings a man to death because it is a complete teaching of immorality, evil, and perdition. <clears throat> a tragic end, suicide, or madness would have been my lot also, if to my good fortune there had not occurred on September 1st, 1962, the greatest miracle in my life. No event occurred on that day. There were no suggestions from outside. I was reflecting in solitude on my problems, to be or not to be, that is, to kill myself or not. At this time, I already realized that to believe in God is a saving thing. I very much wanted to believe in him, but I could not deceive myself. I had no faith. And suddenly there came a second when somehow for the first time I saw as if a door had opened from a dark room into the sunny street. And in the next second I already knew for sure that God exists and that God is the Jesus Christ of Orthodoxy and not some kind of other God. I call this moment the greatest miracle because this precise knowledge came to me not for reason I know this for sure, but by some other way, and I am unable to explain this moment rationally. And so by such a miracle, my new spiritual life began, which has helped me to endure another 13 years of life in concentration camps and prisons and a forced emigration. And this moment of faith is the greatest miracle is being experienced now in Russia by thousands of people, and not only in the concentration camps and prisons. Igor Ogurtsov, the founder of the Social Christian Union, came to faith not in the camps, but in the university. Religious rebirth is a typical phenomenon of contemporary Russia. 
everything spiritually alive inevitably returns to God. And it is absolutely evident that such a saving miracle, despite the whole might of communist politics, can be performed only by the Almighty God, who has not left the Russian people in terrible sufferings and totally defenseless before many enemies. Well, this experience of this one man, who then died very shortly after this, shows us something about, in the most practical kind of way, how God reveals himself. That is, something happens in the heart, and suffering helps it, but there's no uh, infallible means for attaining this. We know, for example, there's much literature that has come out of Russia in these last 60 years, and we know many cases of people who were in prison camps who were not converted. In fact, there's a very interesting book, which is in English, by uh, Mark Marchenko, called My Testimony. And he's a ma simply an honest man. And he couldn't stand this frightful feeling of fakery in Soviet Russia, the fact that everybody lies to you. And therefore he told the truth. And telling the truth, he got into camp. And they gave him the usual interrogations, and they kept telling him, you know, if you keep your ideas, even if you get out, you're going to come back here, why don't you just change and do what everybody else does? And he said, I can't, I'm an honest man. And he would look at people who are believers, and he said, the only happy people in the prison camps are believers, because they say, I'm suffering for Christ. And they're satisfied. Somehow they accept this is for Christ. And I can't, because I don't believe in Christ. And so he just looks at the jailers, he gets mad, he wants to pound the doors at them. And when he gets out, he's filled with bitterness and wants to kill them all off. And he knows that he'll just get back there again. In fact, they, they put him after he wrote this book, again he was sent back. And so we see in his case, so far his heart didn't melt. He's still hard. But of course, the, the heart is a very complex thing. Maybe someday his, he will change. But it shows that there's no, no infallible means. You can't simply put a man in a prison camp and say, aha, we'll make him a Christian this way, because it doesn't work. Some become Christians, some don't. But this process of revelation occurs in a very simple way. There's a person is in need, he suffers, and then somehow this other world opens up. And the more you're in a process of suffering and in difficulties and desperate for God, the more he's going to come to your aid and open up what he is, uh, show you the way to get out. And this is why it is not some kind of spectacular things like miracles that we should look forward to. That is, the heaven should be opened up, angels should come down. And from the story of the, the saint in the key of caves, we already know this is the, the worst possible way. This is going to lead to some kind of deception. But the heart which tries to humble itself and simply knows that it's suffering and that there's somehow some higher truth which can not only help the suffering but bring it into a totally different dimension. Just as Christ went to his suffering on the cross, endured this horrible kind of death, which is the most shameful kind of death at that time, and then totally to the consternation of his own disciples, he rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit and began the history of the whole Church of Christ. Well, that's basically what I say about the revelation in orthodoxy. You can ask some questions or have a discussion on those points. Is he talking about the orthodox view of the Holy Spirit and maybe in relation to that, the view of non-orthodox sacraments, Christian sacraments? Whether the Holy Spirit is there. Um, well, the Holy Spirit was sent 
the Holy Spirit was sent by our Lord Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, the 50th day after his resurrection, the 10th day after he himself ascended to heaven, in order to remain with the church to the end of time. And historically, there was one church which he founded. And actually, I think if you look historically, well, there were the people who did that. There was a the whole history of the church in Uganda. There were two seminarians in the 1920s who were studying in an Anglican seminary and began to see that the teaching they were being given was not the same as the teaching they were reading in the ancient fathers. And so they began to think, well, Catholicism must be the answer. That must be the ancient church. They called it the search for the true ancient church. And they went to study in the Roman Catholic seminary, and they began to see that the teaching they were being given was not the same as the teaching they were reading in the ancient fathers of the church. And they began to say, well, where is the truth? If the tr uh, truth can be changed like that, then where is the truth of Christ? And then they heard about the Orthodox faith. And they went through all kinds of, of trials to find where the Orthodox faith was. They first found someone who called himself Orthodox, who was just a charlatan, passing around and giving out what he called sacraments. And when some Greek priest, or a Greek layman, told them there's something funny about that man, they sort of saw that and repented and changed their mind and began to search again. Then the bishop they went to was not a very good bishop, the Orthodox, the first Orthodox bishop they encountered, and he said, oh, don't bother, all religions are the same, go back to the Anglicans. And they didn't let that discourage them. And they finally found an Orthodox bishop who was teaching what he should be teaching, and they became Orthodox, and today the church is spreading in Africa and throughout uh, Uganda, Kenya, and uh, uh, the Congo, Z Zaire, uh, Tanzania, and so forth. And we even have records of their services, which are very impressive. They've taken the um, Byzantine Greek chant, and without trying to do anything to it, they simply chant it in their own way, in their own languages, and it comes out very dignified sounding, sort of a local African flavor, but very, just like the, the same thing the Greeks did when they took the Hebrew chant. <coughs> and they looked historically and found that there's one church which comes down directly from Christ and teaches the same thing, and that's the Orthodox Church. And therefore, if you look historically, you'll find that the other churches have deviated. In Roman Catholicism, first of all, in the 11th century, when the big issue finally came to a head about the position of the Pope in the church, and the Pope rejected the Orthodox answer and took the whole West with him away from that. And to this day, the Holy Spirit acts in the Church, in the Orthodox Church. In most Western groups, Protestant groups, whatever they have, they seldom even call them sacraments. So you don't, wouldn't really look for the grace of the Holy Spirit in something which they themselves do not regard as sacraments. Of course, Roman Catholics and a few other groups do consider they have sacraments. Um, I myself would say that The true sacraments in the sense that Christ founded them are to be found only in the Orthodox Church. And those who, taking the name of sacrament, try to make the best they can out of it, that's a matter between that soul and God. And whatever God might want to do with that soul, that's in his affair. And it might not only be a psychological thing, I don't know, that's for, that's for God to choose. But the means he instituted in the Church came down to this very day in the Orthodox Church. In fact, you see historically that we do the same things they did in the ancient church. This, uh, Philip took the eunuch and into the river and baptized him, and that in the very same way we do, with three immersions in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we keep very, that's why Orthodoxy is known for being so old-fashioned, we keep deliberately the old-fashioned 
ways which came down from Christ, the apostles, the early fathers of the church. Yet the uh, demons appear as <coughs> angels um, and say the things that angels would say. And how can one distinguish which what is the truth? Question. It's a very good question. You have to be humbling yourself. You have to be in a state of wanting the truth of God and not seeking after some kind of experiences. Of course, I would say, become Orthodox Christian to find out the whole discipline that is of leading a Christian life. And this helps. That isn't, there's no guarantee because you can be deceived as an Orthodox Christian too. But the fathers give basic words of advice. For example, they say, if someone appears to you as an angel of light, distrust it. And God will not condemn you if he actually wants to appear to you and you reject him. Because if he really wants to get a message to you, he'll come again and find a way of getting through it to you. And in fact, he praises you for being distrustful because you don't want to fall into some kind of deception. Those who are in a more advanced spiritual state, who are more experienced with these things, we know in the life, for example, of St. Anthony the Great, who all the time was seeing demons. And they asked him how he knew. And he said, when an angel appears, I feel very calm. When a demon appears, even if it looks like an angel, I feel a disturbance. But that's a little dangerous for beginners because you can feel very calm about demons, too, if you aren't experienced. But I said, the basic answer is to enter into the discipline of the Orthodox Church, and that helps the more you read, for example, these accounts, and you see sort of particular ways in which demons manifest themselves. And you can often, just by saying, oh, that's a typical way they're going to trick me, you can instantly sort of refuse it. You did a talk last night on the apocalypse. Okay. Well, yeah, how we look at the events of the time of these times. Well, I was looking at the events that are happening in the world today as signs of the end, and how our, our Christian attitude towards the end should be that we should not be counting the years or or calculating who is the prince of the king of the south, the king of the north. Uh, but going more deeply into the question of, of all the early apostles uh, in their epistles, they write about the necessity for thinking Christ is near, for preparing ourselves, being first of all spiritually prepared. And then whatever happens, if we're in the state of expectation of Christ coming in a spiritual sense to us, whether to our own soul through grace or whether at the time of our death, then uh, the question of exactly when he's going to come physically to this earth at the end of the world is not going to be something that's going to upset us to such an extent that we join a new sect that goes to the top of a mountain and, and waits for the day to come. Because the day and the hour we do not know. The main thing is a spiritual preparation. But our times are so filled with what you can call apocalyptic events that we should be very aware of those. And as our Lord says, although we do not know the day and the hour, we should be looking like at the fig tree, which when its leaves become green, you know, summer is close. And also when all these things begin to happen, when it becomes possible for there to be one world government, when the gospel is being preached to all peoples, and the various other signs, great tribulations and so forth are happening, when the uh, possibility of the world empire, when so many spiritual currents are happening, which are obviously deceptive, it's obviously signs that some big thing is about to happen, and very likely it's bound up to the very end of the world. But our attitude should be more of being spiritually prepared for that and very much also in the reading about what happens to people in prison camps is very instructive because it shows that no matter what might happen 
we might be under, even under Antichrist himself, placed in some kind of prison, that we can survive because we have Christ. You know, it's a very instructive to read about lives of martyrs, especially today, people who are being martyred. Attitude uh, towards non-Christian religions is well, Christ came to enlighten mankind. And various religions, where they are sincere, not just kind of real demon worship, because really the soul is really trying to get through to God, I would say before people hear about Christ, they're fine as far as they go. They're not going to get you to the goal. The goal is eternal life in the kingdom of heaven which is revealed, actually, God in the flesh came to open this up to us. And therefore, Christianity is true, and the other religions are, you can point to the various comparative elements of truth that you have, and often they're very profound in philosophy, but they do not open up heaven. Only when Christ came and was actually told the thief on the cross, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, was actually heaven opened up to men. So, uh, people who haven't had any exposure to Christ um, don't have uh, access to the truth? Well, those who have never heard of Christ, that's for God to judge. In the Old Testament, people never heard of Christ either. And then Christ came and preached to them in hell. Mm. And St. John the Baptist also, we believe, came to, in hell before Christ. And he told them that Christ is about to come to hell to liberate all those who want to be liberated, who want to believe in him. So God can open to those who never had a chance to hear. That is, they didn't reject the gospel, they just didn't hear about it. That's God can open up to them whatever he can. But once you accept the revelation, of course, you're much more responsible than anybody else. And you have to live that kind of life. And a person who accepts the revelation of God come in the flesh and then does not live according to it, he's much worse off than any kind of pagan priest or anybody else. Yes? Could, uh, something I don't know much about, probably a lot of other people here don't, is uh, what, are, what are some of the concrete uh, differences and similarities, say, between the uh, Russian Orthodox Church and, say, the Catholic Church? I mean, say, in regards to different doctrines and ideas, say, like, whether it be the Trinity or whether priests marry or not, or uh, this, that, and whatever, you know, all those hundred and one million one little things that, that make up... Well, there are a lot of little differences. There's one main difference, I think. I would explain it precisely in connection with the Holy Spirit, that since the Church of Christ is the religion in which the Holy Spirit gives grace to people. In the West, after Rome broke off from this Church, this grace was actually lost. Maybe incidentally people found it here and there, but from that whole Church, the grace was cut off. And I look at modern Roman Catholicism as an attempt to substitute by human ingenuity for this grace which they lost. And therefore, the Pope becomes infallible because where is truth? In fact, people look at our Orthodox Church and they say it's impossible for people to find truth because you say that you don't believe in any pope or any bishop, therefore there's no guarantee. You don't believe in the scriptures like a Protestant might and say that that's the absolutely infallible word. And therefore, where, if you have a controversy, where is the word? And we say the Holy Spirit will reveal itself, especially when bishops come together in council. But even then, there can be a false council. And if people say there's no hope, then we say the Holy Spirit guides the Church and therefore he will not be false to the church. And if you haven't got that feeling, then you devise things like making the Bible infallible or making the Pope infallible, and then making everything orthodox, or so many orthodox things, as the Roman Catholics did, into some kind of a law. 
so that everything is nicely defined. You break this law, you go to your confessor and get such a, such a penance, and you're all set, set again. And orthodoxy does not believe that's where the whole idea of indulgences came from. It's a totally legalistic perversion of the idea of repentance. If you repent, like the thief on the cross, you're, you're saved, you can be saved at that moment. And orthodoxy always emphasizes the spiritual aspect of the added the, the relationship of my soul to God and all the sacraments of the church and all the means of discipline in the church is only a means of getting my soul right with God and that's, that's the whole of our faith and in Latinism in the Roman church until very recently when things began to, do, to dissolve the emphasis was rather on obeying a whole set of laws and thereby getting right with God in a legalistic sense which is not it's a substitute for the Holy Spirit do they still yeah. have still have uh, the fasting and all the early traditions in regards to Latin and things like this? Or the Roman Church? Uh, and also, well, the Russian Orthodox Church, do they have a lot of those old traditions? Or? Well, we have definite discipline of fasting, yes. Just like it was in ancient times. come down from very early in the Church. That we know in the first century from the Didache that was fasting on Wednesday and Friday. Um, yes? Could you say something specifically about Anglicanism? Because there is a certain similarity there about what you said about the Pope being infallible and the Protestants saying the Bible is infallible. And I see Anglicanism also, in that sense, as, as trying to balance those two out and not falling into either of those. Um, although I realize you can say historically, you know, it's a great gospel. Well, in many cases, Anglican people are trying hard, but they're... they're they're starting from so far away. You can't, you come to God, you can't just sort of think it out or devise a system. It has to be, you come into living contact with the grace of God. And if I answer for anger, it needs to come into contact with the church.